Hello, Wildcats. This is the Words of Wildcat podcast, season two, episode two. My name is Tommy Fernandez, and joining me today is my co-host, Aureli Ruiz. What's up, Wildcats? Thank you so much for being here today. Our last episode was themed around diversity and inclusion with our notable CWU alumni, Armando Ortiz. If you haven't gotten a chance to check that out, please make sure to go check that out now. And uh, that being said, today's episode is themed on health and wellness. Remember, you can receive uh, credit towards your WLA certificate by just listening to and completing an assessment after today's episode. So we are really excited to have Dr. Jesus Iniguez joining us here today. He's a CWU alumni from graduating class of 2011. Jesus, thank you so much for joining us. We would like, to, um, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you've been up to since uh, graduating CWU? Sure, yeah. Um, after I left CMU, <coughs> I did a year of AmeriCorps in Seattle. Um, meanwhile, I applied to medical school. I got into medical school at two medical schools, um, University of Washington and at Dartmouth. Uh, Dartmouth is in New Hampshire on the other side of the state, so I decided to go away and spend some time away um, on, the, on the East Coast. Uh, spent four years doing medical school. I specialized in family medicine. I uh, did residency for another four years in north of Boston, at a small town called Lawrence, uh, where I studied uh, family practice, um, ultrasound techniques, surgical obstetrics, like delivering babies, doing C-sections, stuff like that, um, you know, chronic pain, things like that. Uh, and I just recently graduated from residency in June and accepted a medical director position here in Des Moines, Washington for CMAR Community Health. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that information with us. That's actually really interesting. I didn't know that there were so many like aspects to like medical, like I knew, but like just hearing the terminology is just like really interesting. But on that note, um, seeing as we're going to be discussing health and wellness today, um, I was talking with Tommy a little bit earlier today about how uh, 2020 has been pretty unpredictable and there's just so much that we can talk about in terms of like health and wellness in 2020. Wouldn't you agree, Tommy? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this year has been, I can say for everyone, has just been crazy. You know, we have gone through, we're still going through a pandemic, you know, all the social justice issues. And even a couple of weeks, even to last week, we had just smoke everywhere. So, and that being said, going back to the pandemic, there's been a lot of changes this year for CWU and uh, our community. You know, Zoom fatigue, that is something that, you know, we never really thought we would hear of, but it, it's real, it's here, you know, and just like, it's just a lot of added, added pressure to students, you know, because I, I think I really would say that, like, we already have a lot of stress as it is, you know, with our classes, you know, with planning for our future. And so this has just been another thing kind of just weighing us down. And a, a lot of it has to do with just us just not having that control, you know all the things that are happening to us this year is kind of like we're being told how we're going to be handling it, you know? So one thing I'm curious is, you know, with the changes of this year through the pandemic, uh, Dr. Jesus, has there any been really any changes that has really impacted your life and your profession? Yeah, uh, absolutely. There have been changes. Um, the, probably the most important change uh, that also pertains to, to how patients access healthcare um, would be moving a lot of our visits to either video or straight telephone visits. Um, the uh, United States Senate passed an emergency bill to allow uh, doctors 
to bill for these telephone visits. So um, that happened right at the beginning, probably a month into the pandemic. And so ever since then, by and large, pretty much every institution that I know has been really heavily utilizing uh, phone, telephone visits and, and video conferencing um, to supplement, you know, not being able to come to clinic in a way that I think it's a positive step Absolutely, no matter if we're in a pandemic or not. Um, clinics did it mainly to, you know, not spread the virus in clinic, right? I mean, as you can imagine, uh, clinics and hospitals are like, are gonna be natural hotspots. Um, and with all the, uh, I think one of the big pushes was the lack of PPE. It wasn't just in the news, it was real. You know, um, clinics were running out of protective masks and having to subject, you know, medical assistants, doctors, nurses to, um, to the virus on a repeated basis. And so um, when you're hearing how dangerous the virus is, um, you know, where it hospitalizes one in 10 people, it, uh, you know, it's kind of, it can get kind of scary. And so um, it was a good, it was a positive step to move everything toward, or not everything, but a, a significant amount of visits to telephone and video. Um, but I do see, I, I do see what you mean in terms of uh, Zoom fatigue. I, in my position, have a more of a balance. I still see patients, right, face-to-face. -face. Um, certain people, certain um, populations of doctors who have certain illnesses or, or are higher risk are doing, I've heard, all telephone visits. And uh, I did a month of that when I was in training earlier uh, this summer. And yeah, it is exhausting. Um, especially if you have other things that were impacted by the pandemic. You know, we had the daycare closed and we had a two-year-old. So having a two-year-old screaming in the background <laughs> while you're on the patient telling the, telling the patient about like, you know, some diagnosis that you just discovered. And <laughs> um, most of the patients are very forgiving, thank God. But um, yeah, there, it was, it's definitely disrupted the routine for sure. Yeah, you mentioned diagnosis because I remember like going into like a little bit of what you said, like for me, like I was telling Tommy and um, Amber a little bit while like a while ago is like how I got sick and like I tried going to the doctor and it's kind of hard to get like access to doctors with such a busy schedule. Has that looked any different for you? Like in terms of like, does that wear you out? Like you mentioned, it gives you a little bit of fatigue, but do you feel like more is being put on your plate as a doctor? given that you have a little bit more access or you're a little bit more available as some people would think like, oh, he's just on the phone. He has time for this many um, meetings. Is that something that happens within your field right now? So funny enough, in my experience, I think it has decreased the amount of loose ends that pop up during face-to-face -face visits. So what happens, patients will come in, they haven't seen the doctor in, and you, you might have examples of this in your own family. Someone hasn't come into the doctor for 10 years, you know, five, 10 years, and they've had this laundry list of problems, right? Face-to-face, -face, it's hard to physically tell the person like, hey, we, we only have so much time, right? We only have this much time and we'd have, we need to move on to the next patient. It's a very difficult thing for a doctor to say to someone who's like, who needs help, right? Um, but over the phone, um, it's much more prescribed and actually patients are a little less um, 
willing to give all of that information, right? So um, I guess the short of it is visits are much more manageable over the phone. Um, however, you can't be as comprehensive. And so it's you take a little bit from being comprehensive, but it's it's definitely not adding to the amount of stress that a busy in-clinic face-to-face session gives you. Um, adding these visits, phone visits throughout the day is actually more manageable, funny enough. Oh yeah, that's a really, um, that's actually interesting that it's more manageable now. But one thing I'm kind of like interested in is that, you know, with, um, you know, it not being as able to go frequently um, to the doctors, one thing is people tend to like try to figure out themselves what their issues are. So say like last week I was kind of like feeling a little down and a little sick. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to Google, is this systems of COVID? And so I started doing a good Google search on that. And I just think my lack of education and information, I actually did feel a little anxiety because I was like, oh man, I am experiencing this symptom. And is that something that's very common you think? Oh man, that is pervasive. Um, anyone who has access to the internet has probably Googled their own symptoms at some point in pre-pandemic too, um, about, about anything that's been going on. Um, <laughs> and you know, the reasons for that are probably various. Um, one, as Ariely mentioned, the lack of access, right? I think the lack of ac easy access, affordable access to a doctor probably pushes people to go Google their own symptoms first. Um, but the easy access to Google is also, you know, the, the, not the problem, but probably one of the reasons it says it's so easy. You can Google everything and anything, right? Um, and like, I, I, you know, we talked before too, I, I, I Google also, right? Everybody Googles. Um, the difference though, is that I, I went through four, four years of medical school. I went through four years of residency. And when I Google something medical, I can very quickly differentiate what's valid and reasonable versus not valid and not reasonable. Um, and I can access certain uh, evidence-based websites, right? That um, maybe the language, you know, Tommy, if you went to this evidence-based website, maybe you wouldn't know what the heck they were talking about, right? Um, <laughs> versus if I access that same website, I can distill it to very usable information. And it's my job as your provider to interpret that information for you to make a decision about your health, right? Um, paternalistic medicine, how it used to be, I used to take the information, tell you none of it, and basically just tell you what to do. And I think a lot of people, it's moved away from that significantly. Um, for multiple reasons, part part of it is Google, and, and people will go and Google their own information and come and spill it to the doctor. But um, but part of it too is uh, that patients tend to be happier and achieve their health goals when they're included in the decision making. And so at my medical school, that was a big you know that was how they taught how to be a doctor was like the shared decision making. And that's a big change from previous. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of Google doctor out there. Yeah, I remember last week you mentioned something about how you would prefer to just give the information that the patient is asking you rather than fill them with all this other like medical knowledge, even though they have access to you and your knowledge that you still only provide like 
the amount that they're asking for do you see that there's like difference in like different populations or like let's say multi-generational families as you were mentioning before how some people haven't gone within like 10 years and someone came in yesterday you know so do you see like a big difference in how people take in that information yeah absolutely uh, i'm glad you said that because it ties into one of the other kind of things that we wanted to talk about was um mental health for especially for males um, especially for minority males but um the way that people access that health information um, is very uh, different depending on people's upbringing. And so, um, and in and, and people's personality too. Um, but uh, like for instance, you know, my uh, uh, Mexican immigrant descendant um, and it, my mom herself was a curandera, which is like a, a cultural natural healer um, for, their, for her community um, growing up in, in, in Mexico. <coughs> she, uh, I would say practices more of a paternalistic, I do, you do what I say type of type of um, advice, and um, which is in to the people she's talking to is totally appropriate, and they expect her to do that, right? So if if that that um, person with that upbringing who expects that from their um, medical professional or or health advisor expects that from you, but you don't provide that, they're gonna leave unhappy or less fulfilled, right? <laughs> Even though the teaching for my medical school was, it needs to be shared, it needs to be shared, it needs to be shared. There's definitely circumstances where patients, that the way you deliver that information is very, very special to them. Um, a very easy example is um, when you're, you know, if we say something as morbid as cancer, when you're talking about cancer, when you're talking about delivering a cancer diagnosis, um, some people don't wanna know, right? Some people don't wanna know, some people don't want their families to know, um, some people wanna know everything. And so the way and how much information you deliver definitely changes person to person. And I would say based on their cultural upbringing, it has a big influence as well. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, going back to um, men's mental health, you know, I identify as you know a man and stuff like that. And there's always a stigma when it comes to I don't know talking about your issues, talking about your problems. And those are like due to um, the three things, which are like social norms. So me basically saying that it is not manly enough for me to talk about these issues, or I can overcome these issues on my own. And that is also kind of allows you to like start to downplay your systems, your system, sorry, excuse me. You start to downplay, you think that it's not as bad as it is. And then that's when it starts to like, you start to, you're reluctant to talk. You're not gonna be able to openly talk about your issues. And that's just something that I've been noticing that is just, uh, it's a reoccurring issue. And that's kind of a reason why, like, um, and that's because it's just, it's not as open of a conversation to talk about mental health between men. There's a lot of examples out there um, about certain populations having higher risk. Um, you can talk about the LGBTQ community. Um, you can talk about and the Native American community. Um, each, each of these populations have much higher risks of, of suicide um, than the average population. <clears throat> People who have access to guns have a higher risk. People who use um, narcotics on a regular basis have a higher risk, more of death. But 
um, particularly as it pertains to like men's mental health, going back to what I said about um, like their cultural heritage um, and what you brought about social norms, I think um, it's very difficult to co coerce someone into sharing that information. The problem is if you if they don't feel willing, the likelihood that you're going to help them is actually really low, no matter what information I tell you. Um, I have a really good example of, uh, of my experience with this and actually was before residency, it was during med school. I went to New York for a week to do psychological relief visits. It was like basically counseling um, for first responders in New York who responded to um, the Hurricane Sandy and who were still there from 9-11. So these people, these first responders whose a lot of people's families either died in Sandy, a lot of their homes, these first responders homes were destroyed while they were out saving other people or, or doing. And so um, they, it was through Friends of Firefighters, which is um, a post 9-11 uh, nonprofit organization. So I worked with them and you can imagine firefighters are a very, very, very tight, tight-lipped group of people who are very proud and tough. And it was my job to go out there and be like, hey, Tell me about your feelings. Tell me how this has affected you. And um, so that was impossible when I, when, I, when I discovered very quickly that people weren't gonna sit there and tell you like their, their mental weaknesses, what they're sad about, you know, how this affected them. But so what I ended up doing was um, I ended up going, they had these big distribution centers um, in, in Brooklyn and uh, Queens and where people were sending donations from all over the country, everything clothes, um, building materials, wood, tools. Um, there was just everything. And they, they, it would be in like um, warehouses like as big as these Walmarts that we have, huge warehouses where they just stored everything. And um, first responders, like people who were involved, who like had suffered through, through the hurricane could come and just come and grab whatever they needed and leave. So I, that's where I hung out. I was just like, hey, I'm just gonna hang out here um, the people in need are going to come and if they need this stuff, I'm, I'm sure that there's something that they that they experienced that has been traumatizing to them. So, um, so I just hung out, I, I hung out there and what the, the only way I could really gain access to that side of them was being like talking about whatever it is that they were coming to get. They'd be like, Oh yeah, I need some, some clothes, or whatever. And I'd be like, okay, so what kind of clothes? And we'd go from, talking about clothes and I kid you not like 10 out of 10 people it went from talking about clothes to yeah I lost my entire life savings my my home everything and they just start bawling and they'd be yeah. and you know and those and it was weird I felt awkward because that was in the middle of this warehouse we would just be having this conversation and it would be so I I felt uncomfortable like damn I didn't really expect to to get this deep with you here, but here we are. So, you know, we would have, we, just allowing them to express those feelings probably never told anyone in their life about. Um, yeah. 
that's like the first step, right? But yeah. it's difficult. It's difficult to get to that first step of allowing people to kind of just open up to you. And and part of this because they probably knew I, they were never going to see me again. <laughs> but, but um, in the clinic, it, it's it's rather difficult. Um, it's rather difficult to uh to coax someone to give you that information. It takes a, a long. It takes a long time. Um. And as you can imagine, people don't like going to the doctor frequently, right? Um, so it, it's, diff it's, it's difficult. On top of, uh, you know, whatever cultural upbringing they, they have themselves um, that they may not ever want to talk about, uh, it's, it's difficult just with the structure that we have. You do feel uncomfortable just opening up to things like that. But kind of sound like, like you said that it's important to kind of like, you know, not... 100% focus on the issue, but at first trying to make that connection, you know, make them feel comfortable and then just, and then it was kind of evolved to them opening and eventually opening up to you. I had, you know, I had a, a I was definitely, um, it wasn't malicious, but I had another intent, right? I wasn't just like trying to get to know them. I wanted them to spill the beans, you know, I wanted them to like release, um, but um, you know, you I you, you use different techniques to get to get to there. You know, one of my questions for you is: Is there any like advice that you have? Because we've talked about a lot today. We've talked about men's mental health and the importance of being able to find that connection and being able to express those feelings if you're willing to, as well as Google diagnosis, multi generational families, the access of all of these like um, all of this information. My question is in terms of like students, like you were a recent student, you mentioned that you just recently graduated from uh, medical school. Um, is there any advice that you have for CWU students in general in terms of what we might be going through in terms of the pandemic, what we might see in the future or how we can deal with stressful situations such as this one and make sure that we prioritize our health and wellness? Yeah. Uh, so that's a, a very important question, um, and I I would be happy to give some advice. I um, it's a tough time for a lot of people in, in a lot of different ways, but <clears throat> I think health and wellness, especially personal health and wellness, uh, I've learned, and a lot of my colleagues are learning that you have to have the you have to have sustainable pillars of health and wellness in your life that you can use or go to when you encounter any difficult time. Um, and a lot of people go through life not having to develop these um, or, uh, or a lot of people have developed them early and can face a lot of, uh, a lot of tragedies or, or difficult circumstances and, and have a lot of resilience. Um, so one key, one very, evidence-based approach to resilience um, in health and wellness is um, close connection, whether that's family or friends, teachers or professors, um, teammates. The more close connections a person has, there was a study showing the more resilient they are when encountering any type of difficult circumstance. That's difficult to gain 
in this era right now because if you meet any new people it's going to be <laughs> probably over the video but um but if you do have any type of prior close contacts close connections with someone spending time and scheduling time where you can nurture that relationship somehow um will will protect you from now and in the future when you encounter difficult circumstances depression um or any 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 type of adverse event where you need resilience to um, recover so that can be like scheduling a, a zoom date with someone on a weekend once a weekend once a month it sounds tacky but um it's something that you need to think about um it could be um writing down all of your friends um, and, and family's birth dates. And when the birthday comes around, right, you know, taking a time to write a card and send it off in the mail or write an email, send it off in the mail for their birthday. Um, not just use the Facebook reminder that everybody else uses. Um, to, um, those are two really easily examples um, for building these connections, especially during COVID era. Um, the other thing is the mind and body connection and balance. So um, COVID itself, the most, uh, two seconds on COVID, the most contagious time, uh, the, the most um, effective contagious period for the virus is close contact in a closed room for 15 minutes. That is the highest contagious um, period for COVID. Okay, that we know of so far. Any separation that you add, um, wearing masks, um, distance separation, decreasing the time that you spend in that room face-to-face, -face, going outside, all adds to decreasing the, the infectious potential of the virus. Out, being outside, six feet apart, without a mask, has a very, very, very low chance of infection. So if you can go out with your friends on a hike, that's pretty safe, like pretty, pretty safe. Go do that, go get outside, get outside and spend time. I know that there was like fires recently, but that was like only two weeks. Otherwise, get outside and go hiking, go be outside in the sun, go try to be more normal. Um, that you can't do while you're inside. Even if you're like a homebody, make yourself get outside, make yourself go outside and, and try to bring friends or family along. Um, don't be scared of doing that. You, people need to do that right now. And, um, and you can't blame the virus for that. The, the potential for infection in those circumstances when you're outside six feet apart is very, very low, very low, okay? Um, now, if someone's like coughing up a storm, you probably shouldn't see that person, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having some people with no symptoms. Um, even if you have the virus and you have no symptoms, if you're outside and you're six feet apart, there's very low likelihood of transmission. Um, much lower than, like I said, close contact, 15 minutes, face-to-face, -face, um, that's, that's a high risk. But anything you add, masks, distance, being outside, um, it decreases it significantly. Um, so go outside and, and try to do that, okay? Um, 
that could, th those two things are probably the most important, I would say, uh, recommendations I could give right now. Yeah, we like to thank you for sharing. And for our CWU students, uh, we just want to address if you or someone you know may be dealing with any mental issues um, that we may have discuss, uh, discussed about, there are campus resources that are available to you. There is the Health and Wellness Center that is located in the CERC, and then also the Student uh, Medical and Counseling Center that you can, you can use. They're all to your disposal. So don't, uh, don't be afraid. Just um, if you know you're experiencing any issues, just reach out and there is help for you. And with that being said, um, Jesus, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed the discussion uh, we had with you today. I myself can take a lot from this. I learned a lot that I can apply when it comes to uh, how to deal with uh, COVID and anything like that. And to our podcast, we want to thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want to hear more, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, or YouTube at Word to the Wildcat. If you're interested in any other programs that are provided through the CLC, please check out our website at cwu.presence.io and follow our social media pages. Also remember, you can, earn, um, you can receive credit uh, towards the Wildcat Leadership Academy by just simply listening and filling out a quick as, uh, assessment that will be provided with this video. You can learn more about that at the CLC website that I really mentioned. With that being said, please join us again next time. I'm Tommy. I'm Areli, and this has been Words to the Wildcat. Thank you.